this is Tony Lloyd. Being a broadcaster for many years, I've witnessed some great stories in the music industry. And now I want to bring as many music stories to you as I can in this series of podcasts. My goal is that they will inspire others making their way in the music world. Music Stories with Tony Lloyd. Hello, you never guess who I'm talking to now on Backstage Tony TV, the one and only Daniel James. Hello. Hello, Tony. Thank you for having me. No it's great problem. to be backstage with you. Well, yes. <laughs> um, now, you've got a new single out, um, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but you, you've had such a busy professional career. I want to dig a little bit into your history. How did you uh, get started when you were a young person in, in the music industry particularly? It was very difficult because I come from a very working class background in the northeast, and there, was, there were no outlets up there. I ended up having to move to London and um, I got a job backstage at Top of the Pops and I was working as a cheerleader. So if, if you go back to the 80s, watch the old videos of Shaky or loads of those groups, uh, Duran Duran, Human League, I would be jigging around behind them. One of the, what I used to call dodgy dancers. Thanks for that. Nice to have met you. Okay, um, fantastic. Okay. Anyway, so I met a guy there. Um, I did the warm-up for Top of the Pops. They, they, um, and I met this guy in the bar. Obviously, everybody knows the BBC Club, the BBC Bar. You know, it was mm. quite special. You kind of would walk up there and there'd be Legs & Co. on one side, the cast of Doctor Who on the other, and then, the you know, the DJs from Top of the Pops. So this guy came over to me. He said, you were really good on the warm-up tonight. He said, do you, do you do anything else? And I said, well, I'm actually a singer, really, and an actor. And I said, I've been writing some songs. And he said, I've just made a lot of money on a record and we need to spend it. He said, would you like to make a record? And I thought, would you like to, <laughs> you don't need to ask me that again. So I ended up recording a cover version of Dream Lover, the old Bobby Darren hit, but we yeah. made it very modern. And um, I was in pantomime in Glasgow at the time and I had to fly up and down at my own expense, I'll have you know. Um, and um, I was in a record shop in Glasgow because years ago, you know what it was like, record shops, you could pour over. Yeah, out. spend hours in there. Yeah. Oh, it was fabulous. Well, when in on the morning before we went in to do a matinee, I'd go into a record shop, I think it was in Pollock Shields or Pollock Shores, and I was thumbing through these legs, I was looking at this, and he had, the guy had a radio on, and the, and the DJ said, and here's the new single from Dana, Dream Lover. <laughs> Two weeks before my record was coming uh, out. So that was my first one down, The Swanee, and it was a white heart-shaped record. So then I ended up meeting Mike Stock and Matt Aitken um, before they signed with Pete, really just before. And Mike lived in southeast London. He had, a, he had a house with a big garden. So me and my brother would go and play five-a-side football while I was laying the tracks down. And then we did a track called Safety in Numbers. And the B-side was when Love Slipped Through My Finger. Well, from working at Top of the Pops, I was asked to do the warm-ups at Cracker Jack. Do you remember Cracker Jack? I do indeed, I'm afraid. Good. <laughs> no, don't be afraid. It's, a, it's good. So um, it was a kids' TV show in the UK. It ran for about 20 years, didn't it? Yeah. Um, so I was doing the warm-ups, and the producer was called Paul Ciani, who also ended up directing Yell on Top of the Pops decade later. Anyway, I took him the record in, and I was young. I was like an eager, be eager beaver. And he said... Um, I'll let you know in a week's time what I think. So I went in the following week and he said, do you want the good news or the bad? And I said, go on then. And he said, I can't stand the A side. He said, but I love the B side. He said, if you get the record companies to turn it over, you can have a spot on the show. Well, I sprinted. I was like Linford Christie on ice. I mean, you know, round to the old phone box, put the 10p in the, in the thing. And I excitedly told the record company and they said... 
oh, we've just printed thousands of it, we can't. Uh. So that was the second record down the pan. <laughs> Talk about apprenticeship. Then I ended up presenting Children's BBC, yeah. a series called But First This. And um, while I was doing that, I met uh, somebody that was uh, Tony Hiller, the songwriter. Brotherhood of Man, Save Your Kisses for Me. Yeah. And he had a song that was going into Song for Europe, which was our precursor to the Eurovision Song Contest. So I ended up singing um, No Easy Way to Love. Now, interestingly enough, Tony had co-written it with Bradley and Stuart James. And if you remember in the 80s, EastEnders had just started on the TV in Britain and it was getting 25 million viewers. So one of the lead characters, Wixie, got a record out, Every Loser Wins. That's right, I remember. Written by Bradley and Stuart James and Simon May. Well, Bradley and Stuart James teamed up with Tony um, Hiller wrote No Easy Way to Love for Me. It was a big ballad. I had long hair. If you go on YouTube, you can see it. And I'm (laughs) waving the old hair around, padded shoulders. I did Wogan, did Song for Europe, didn't win. That was the third record down the path. It's a marathon. I kept saying to myself, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So um, Keep going, keep going. Yes, keep going, uh, as Frank Spencer used to say. (laughs) So um, then, um, from Children's BBC, I met Jeff Chegwin. Now, in, in the UK, Jeff Chegwin had a twin brother called Keith Chegwin, who was mm-hmm. a big TV personality. He was. And a sister, Janice Long, Radio 1 DJ. Yeah. So I met Jeff Chegwin, on a, and he said to me, what are you doing when the series ends? And I said, I'm going to go back to writing songs. I really miss it. He went, I didn't know you did that. Come to my office. So I went round to his office in Nomis a week or two later. Nomis was in between Shepherd's Bush and Olympia, a big four-story brick building. Well, the Who, the Rolling Stones, everybody that was anybody rehearsed in there. So I trundled in there, met Jeff, and he loved my songs. And he said, the thing is, Daniel, he said, there's a real, there's so many solo artists at the moment. How do you fancy being in, in it with someone else? So he introduced me to another singer. And I ended up, for the next two years, writing like two albums worth of material. I'd turn up there with melodies and harmonies and, and lyrics and stuff. Jeff, we got a beat-up old car. We toured the UK to a club. You know, we'd play like a club in Birmingham at midnight, then one in Stratford at two in the morning. You had to duck the chicken legs that would get thrown at you, you know, <laughs> uh, chicken in a, in a basket and stuff. And um, we did that. And then he introduced it to something called the Lunch Club. And we'd go around to schools and uh, perform after they'd had their lunches. And so we kind of built up a, a nighttime audience of older people and then the kids from the younger audience. The best bit was the school dinners um, because we'd go in and the, we were so thin because we literally slogged down the country like whippets on heat. And when we arrived at the schools, the dinner ladies would go, oh, boys, you look ever so thin. We'll put some dinner aside for you. They weren't Welsh. And um, <laughs> after, the, after we performed, we'd go back and there'd be these big dinners and they'd say, and you remember those sponges and custard and everything. Oh. So we loved the lunch clubs. So we basically built up a great fan base. And then Jeff said, right, boys, you're ready. Showcase time. Because in those days, they didn't meet acts off YouTube. You know, you didn't lift your shirt up and have a six pack and get a record deal or mm. a merchandising deal. You had to work. And so we went back to Nomis, rehearsed, and we did a showcase. Loads of record companies came, but the two that were interested were... CBS, which later became Sony, and Fanfare Records, which was Simon Cowell. Yeah. What's, what's it like working for Simon Cowell? Oh, dear, well, nearly as bad as working with you. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Simon um, was a challenge, but a good challenge and okay. a bad challenge. We signed, we, I didn't want to sign with Fanfare because I saw myself as a singer-songwriter. Of course, Simon already had Sunita, who was the cover queen. Oh. Anyway, in the end, um, I was in Ibiza on holiday and I heard Instant Replay, the old Dan Hartman hit. Yeah, I remember it well. Good track. Yeah, a bit before my time. But then, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> and but, take, uh, take, did take that to it? No, they did the, the other they one. They did the B-side. Yeah, like yeah Relight like My Fire yeah, with Lulu. They done both, you know? Yeah. Anyway, so um, into replay, the dance floor was chocker. And I said to my partner in the group at the time, I said, if we're going to do a cover, because I didn't want to do one, I said, look, the dance floor's full of blokes and women. Everybody likes this one. So we get back to Simon's office in London. Now, bear in mind, we're two young blokes. We've got a suntan. We've been in Ibiza. So we've got the, the T-shirts, the shorts, the espadrilles. We felt with the bee's knees. We walked in his office. Simon's got his feet up on the table, the, the stack heels, the, the jeans up to his neck, and he's browner than David Dickinson's <laughs> mahogany sideboard. And he had a, a book in his hand, and he spun his legs round off the table, and the book fell on the floor. So, you know, being a nice guy, I went to pick it up, and he said... Um, I've got an idea for a song for you, darling. And I said, well, actually, um, that's how we used to talk, by the way. Um, <laughs> and um, um, I said, well, actually, you're, you're going to be really pleased. We finally found a cover. And he, and he said, well, pick the book, I'll open it up. Without a word of a lie, I opened the British Book of Hit Singles, which he used to sleep under his pillow. I think there might have been a few other things there as well, but the main <laughs> book was that one. And I opened it and he turned the, the corner over on the book instant replay Dan Hartman and I looked at him and I said this you must be psychic yeah. that's the song so against my best in best intentions we recorded it with Nigel Wright remixed by Pete Hammond at PWL and it was a smash we went all over the world every dream you can imagine you have about being a pop star came true the most amazing couple of years that's incredible. And how do you um, get back into television then? Because, as I said earlier, you were a dodgy dancer on the <laughs> top of the pops. He pushes it, doesn't he? <laughs> Two digs in the side. Two digs in the elbow. Yeah, take it as a compliment. <laughs> I'm only jealous. Cheers. Uh, cheers. And um, so then um, how did you get back into the well, TV? In a, in a nutshell, um, although Yell was the most amazing experience, it ended very badly. I woke up one morning and I opened a newspaper in one of the tabloids and it said Yell down the dumper. And, you know, having it with my group, I came up with a name, it was my baby. And having it whipped away from you overnight was disastrous. Mm. I, I lost everything. I was buying my parents a home. I, it was a terrible time. And I ended up having a nervous breakdown and I lost, as I say, everything. And my self-esteem went with it. Because we'd, we'd lived and breathed it for like four years. I'd not had a day off. Anyway, I ended up moving to New York and um, ended up... Nobody knew me there. We'd, re we'd recorded it in, in L.A. with Michael J., who wrote Toy Soldiers for Martika, but we'd not released in America, so I could do anything. Nobody... There was no pressure. I wasn't opening a magazine where they were laughing because we were down the dumper, you know? Because in this country, it's great. They love you when you're like that, but when you're like that, there's yeah. no mercy, yeah. you know? I understand, yeah. So... I was in a play in New York and I thought, oh, I can do it again. So I, uh, sadly at that time, I came back to England and my parents were both ill. So I ended up chucking the career in again. I put my career on ice and I became, my, believe it or not, my mum's full-time carer for 10 years. Um, and, and I wouldn't have missed it for the world. Uh, oh. I, if she was still here, I'd do it now. Sure. So I did, I looked after my mum for 10 years and without a word of a lie, we, we watched Britain's Got Talent, we watched The X Factor, America's Got Talent on TV and I never once thought that could be me. 
I, I genuinely just put it all on ice. It was like, didn't matter. My mum sadly passed away just before COVID. So I found myself um, on my own and it was the weirdest experience. I mean, if you've been anyone's full-time carer, it, mm. you can't do it for five hours a day. It, it's a 24-hour 24, yeah, and you must get... So obviously she was your mother, but you get even closer, I should imagine. You, 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 well, the day, the morning that she passed away, she put her hand on mine in the bed and said, you're my best pal. And I said, I thought she was losing it. I said, no, my mum, your son. She went, no, you've been my best pal. And she died later in the day. And it's only now, in when you look at back in retrospect, it's almost like she was trying to thank me and, mm. you know, give me a message. Mm. Uh, but you're too close to see it, you know. Yeah. Anyway, to cut a long story short, um, I was lost when my mum passed away. I, I, I didn't know who I was, a carer, a singer, an actor, what? So eventually, I, I was on my own in London at that time, and it was lockdown. So I used to go out for walks every night. And I'd seen on TV in the afternoon... You know, in the UK and probably around the world, every day there'd be a news report about the numbers and, and people in care homes who couldn't see their children. And I saw this lady put her hand up against the glass because she, the daughter couldn't go in the care home to see her. And it was so sad. And I went out for this walk and I walked all the way to Alexandra Palace, which is miles. Wow. Suddenly out of nowhere, when the world turns its head, there were people around me with their hearts in their mouths, not knowing the right way they should turn. And these lyrics came out. I had not written a song in decades, and I mean it. I turned on my feet after about 10 minutes, and I ran home. It took me blooming ages, because I didn't have my mobile phone with me. Got indoors, and because if you don't put it down straight away, yeah. mm -hmm. the next morning you'll forget it. I quickly sung it into the phone, got ready, went to bed, thought nothing of it. The next morning I got up, and I played it back, and I thought, wow. So I went out for a walk every night. <laughs> By the end of lockdown, I had loads of songs down and I went in the studio. The tough bit for me was going in the studio because I had not been in in decades. And literally when Yell ended, I took, I blamed, even though I hadn't done anything, it, it ended so badly. Nobody spoke to me. There, I couldn't get the record company. It, it, you know, and there's no HR department, you know, and I wasn't a pal of Elton John because he seems to rescue everybody when they struggle. You know, if I'd known Elton, I could have rang him up and said, help, 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 you know. So... I got in the studio and I sang the first line and the guy stopped the tape and I thought, oh, I'm crap, I'm crap. And he went, no, 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 no. He said, it's a problem. I didn't have the fader up at the right level. And he played me back what he had. And I heard my voice and I thought, I can do it. And I thought, you idiot, you've waited. You've, you've held yourself back. No one else held me back. And I'd waited all those years not believing I could sing anymore. But maybe, you know time maybe it wasn't the right time and you had to have that break away from it all before you went back i think you're probably right i'm a great believer in fate and timing mm. and stuff but you know suddenly i was getting phone calls from radio stations saying are you the guy from yell you know and and i said yeah and they said oh come on the show so i just went went on every radio show and some tv shows and ended up telling my story and everybody has been amazing all the yell fans you know even when I was in the most downest time, they kept in touch. So now they're over the moon that I've got music out. I've had um, the original Set Your Spirit Free uh, just after lockdown, which just kind of had a limited release. Then Don't Wanna Lose That Girl, which got in the Heritage chart. Do You Remember Me, which got number one on the Heritage chart. Then A Christmas Silent Night, A Holy Night. And then um, 
it, I, I thought about remixing Set Your Spirit Free because hardly anybody heard it at the end of lockdown. So I went in the studio with a great called, guy called Zach, who's a fabulous engineer and keyboard player. And I love Quincy Jones and I love Nile Rodgers and I love slappy bass and dance beats. So I wanted to put on, and I have put on, Set Your Spirit Free, some great bass and dance beats and just made it a summer happy record. Oh. And... I've re-released it as this new mix, Set Your Spirit Free 2023. Do you know what? It's getting a great response. I've done a, I do videos for all my songs and I'm walking around um, Devil's Dyke in Sussex. I'm on top of a, a World War II bunker and I'm along the beach and people were coming over and saying hello and it, it's just a feel-good record and it, oh. it just feels great to be back. Um, and as I say, this is a guy, I, I only got into this again because of lockdown. If lockdown hadn't, I know this is weird, I wouldn't have gone for those walks. I would never have thought of singing again because I didn't believe that I could sing. Tell me about the soaps that you've been in on television. Well, I've been in um, the UK series Coronation Street. I played a really suspicious detective, Detective Wright. And Steve MacDonald is a long-time regular in the show. He'd been doing a little bit of naughty. He's never an out-and-out criminal, but he bends the rules. He's a bit naughty. And uh, I had to rescue him and his friend Vikram. R rescue? I had to arrest. <laughs> they needed rescuing from me. And Detective Wright was a, a real suspicious character. So I really enjoyed it. It was great going up to, to Manchester. And um, I, it's, it's really funny. But when I went for the audition, I took my mum. Because I was looking after my mum at the time. And I left her in reception. And of course, I'm thinking, you know, I went upstairs and I'm thinking, she's going to be all right down there while I'm in there. Well, I came downstairs. She's only sitting in reception chatting with one of the lead characters, <laughs> having a good old natter with Rita Fairclough or Rita Tanner. And I'm, she's more at home than I was. But filming was great. We, we, um, to walk on the, on the, the cobbles, the coronation, it was amazing. And then I also did EastEnders, but I did EastEnders in the coldest winter. And... It was outside. It was on Albert Square. And I had to, I'd bought a car from Phil Mitchell, another dodgy character. And I turn up at the square on this very cold day and I had to walk across the square, go to the car lot, bang on the door. And of course, Phil doesn't turn up, but the sun turns up and we end up having a real Barney. But the whole point of my character, the BBC were doing something about deaf people and the fact that if they're deaf, unless you're looking at them, they can't read your lips. Yeah. And so my character, I had to walk around him, you know, being very angry. And of course, he was missing what I was saying. And he was getting more frustrated. And what the BBC, what the director and the producer did, they dipped my, um, some of my dialogue so that people at home could understand what it's like for a deaf person um, to have to deal if, if they can't see your mouth. Yeah. So every time I went behind him, they dipped my, my lines. Um, I mean, most people were over the moon. They didn't want to hear me. But um, it was great. But the thing was, it was so cold. And I remember on the car lot, we, it was eight, we, I'd been, I got there about six o'clock. We got on the lot about eight. And I, I, they kept having technical problems. So I had to bang on the car lot about eight times. And I remember, because you do it for real, you know, I'm not going to yeah. pussyfoot about. And I remember my knuckles were... When you're doing it, you don't realise. But when I got back in the green room after, it looked like I'd gone in 10 rounds with Tyson. <laughs> you know, Mike Tyson or Tyson Fury, probably Tyson Fury. Um, but we shot the scene and, um, as I say, I, I, I wanted to get revenge on him. And when, we, when, when the guy had stormed off, Ben... Um, I stormed back to my car, but what I didn't realise was his young daughter had run across to shout at this man for shouting at her daddy. 
and I, I reversed over in the car. And I looked out of the car and it went... <laughs> so I thought I would be invited back, but COVID just happened uh-huh. and they ended up rewriting the scripts. Uh, so that didn't go out? I didn't, well, no, it went out. I was on EastEnders, but I didn't get to follow up the story because, you know, we know with the Mitchell brothers, you don't cross the Mitchell brothers. <laughs> I would have probably come back the next couple of weeks and got a pummeling, you know, uh, off the Mitchell brothers. So I never got it. So I lived to fight another day. So I could. Maybe they'll have you back. Yeah, even if it's a different character. I didn't, you know, it was great. I mean, to be, as I say, I've been on the cobbles at Corrie. I've been on the, uh, on the square and I've been in Doctors as well, which is a medical drama. So, um, and Bad Girls, the prison series, and also Casualty. I was a um, ex-drug dealer in Casualty trying to get his daughter back. So I tend to get suspicious policemen or angry dads. Why? Look at me. I'm the nicest person going. <laughs> well, you sound like it. Um, so you basically had a very busy career so far. What have you got planned for the future? Well, hopefully people will still give me some. I could do the couple of acting jobs and more records. Now I'm back doing the records. It, it's the thrill of a lifetime. I, I absolutely love it. And I've got some ideas for, for more, rec- more singles to come. And it's just great to be back there performing and, and have... You see, the Yell fans have come back, which is fabulous. I mm. mean, they were always around. But I've got new people coming in as well. Because you'd be amazed how many times I do things and they go, oh, what have you done before? And I said, do you remember Yell? And they go, oh, were you the one in Yell? You know, so it's great because I'm bringing the old and I'm getting mm. the new. So hopefully just carry on. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for talking to me on Backstage Tony TV. Um, you've been very easy to talk to because you've got so ma- so many stories. We'll have to do part two another time, I think. But uh, thank you so much. And your single, which is called Set Your Spirit Free, 2023, don't forget that mix, is uh, available now. And good luck with that. And thank you for talking to me. Thank you for having me, Tony. It's been a pleasure. Tony Lloyd, creating audio and film worldwide.